Well, this morning, this is the third installment of a five-part series entitled, Bad Ideas About God. Based on some messages I've received from you, some interactions I've had with you, uh, we have a lot of bad ideas about God. And what we're submitting to you each week is that if we're um, not fortified with good ideas, we'll be victimized by bad ones. And the first two that we've looked at prior to this weekend has been week one. We looked at Grandfather God. And I ask you to consider a little bit about your grandfather. For most of you, your grandpa's a good guy. He, you pay respects to him uh, from time to time, call him sometimes. And, but he's getting older. He's getting weak. He's, he's distant. He's not what he used to be. And sometimes it's easy for us to see God that way, that he's past his prime. He's over the hill. He's outdated and overrated. He's like a grandfather. And we ask you to consider Hebrews chapter 1 that talks about the sustainability of creation and the unchangingness of God's character to debunk that myth of grandfather God. And then last week, if you were here or able to listen online, we talked about guilt God, the, the fear-based religion that really becomes more about avoiding things than enjoying things, about more, more than enjoying God. And I went Presbyterian on you and told you, reminded you that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That God is the God of joy, that Jesus really cares about your happiness. Jesus says joy is a big, big deal. We looked at Psalm 16 and verse 11, in your path, or you will show me the path of life, that in your, in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And how sad it is to think that the world has hijacked those words, pleasure and joy, and that the church is in, in some ways bereft of them, that we don't think about them often, that they're not a noble part of who we are and what we're experiencing in Jesus. And today we come to our uh, a third bad idea about God, and this is it. Today we're going to look at vending machine God. Vending machine God. Now if you do a little study of the history of the vending machine, vending machines, the first coin-operated vending machine came on the scene in the early 1880s in London, England. Now what do you guess? Did, what did they sell in England at that time in vending machines? The first ever coin-operated vending machines Put a little bit in, and what do you think you could get out? Turn to the person next to you and just take a while. You're not going to get it right, but just take a guess, right? Mountain Dew, Moon Pies, right? Cheetos, Oreos, Honey Buns, right? Ready? Postcards. Postcards. And then the, there was a, a, a company, Thomas Adams Gum Company, brought vending machines to America in the late 1800s. They were placed on elevated subway platforms in New York City. And from there, it, it took about, I think it was 20 years after that, before you get the first soda in a vending machine. And it was coin-operated, put, put a nickel in, and you get a soda that dispenses into a cup. Okay, not a can, not a bottle yet. So we've come a long way, but you can get a ton of stuff. If you Google this, you'll find out that pretty much anything that your heart desires can nowadays, somewhere in the world, be found in a vending machine. In China, you can, you can put some coins in and get live crabs. In France, they call them fresh beignets. You can go to German train station and get Legos. In Istanbul, pet food. In South Korea, socks. In Portland, you can get uh, parts to uh, bike parts and guitar picks and stuff like that. You can go anywhere today and put some coins in and get something out. This, though, is your conception of the vending machine right there. And the idea that I want to look at today is sometimes we think that's God. You put a little something in, get a little something out. This week, the middle of the week, I went to the Delta. I had a, 
opportunity to, to lead something with Chick-fil-A. The Chick-fil-A, my local Chick-fil-A friends in the corporate office from Atlanta, they asked me to emcee a big event, a leadership event that they have once a year for high school students. We had some students from Jackson Velma, from Hartfield Academy out in the reservoir, a few local schools, and a bunch of schools from the Delta. It was a good experience, and they had me kind of go back in time, or at least from my perspective, I was going back in time. I'm not young anymore. And I was the MC of this event that we had in the Bologna Center at Delta State University, amazing auditorium with two balconies, and it seats 1,200 people, and the place was just alive with students. And my, my job was to sing and dance and just introduce people and have it move. So for real, I'm doing the whip and the nay-nay. I'm, I'm up there just freestyling to turn down for what? And I'm like, if, if this shows up at YouTube... You guys are not going to want me to be your pastor anymore again. And I mean, yeah. But listen, on the way home, I was driving, and I opened up the, you know, Chick-fil-A. They're going to do it right, right? So I have a little gift bag, and there's a little card in there. You got to, don't act like you don't, like you, you're going to look and see, right? And you want it to be a thank you note, but you're hoping it was something else, right? Because, I mean, it's Chick-fil-A. And I open up the gift card, and it's, ready? It's $500 to Kroger. How cool is that? And I text my wife, and of course I'm a pastor, so I pull over, and I text my wife. <laughs> so I pull over, young people, and I text my wife, and I say, we got $500 gift card to Kroger. How cool is that? She's already spent half of it. She ripped, right when I got home, she ripped it away from me. But it's cool, isn't it? But here, listen, I did just a little something, and I got a lot. You know, when you, when you get something, it creates something, doesn't it? Like the next time I go do something, I'm probably going to expect something cool, right? Hey, what are you going to give me? What's it going to be? A thank you note's not going to be enough next time, is it? Because I got $500 to Kroger. Expectations can hurt us. When we start getting things, we start expecting things. And I bet a lot of you in this room consider today and say, God has given me this. God has given to me the following. Hey, I can tell you, I'm looking at my life, and let me tell you something God has given me. And each and every time, it creates for us expectations. That's not all bad. But if God is a vending machine in your life, that's bad. Wait a second. At Fonder, we want to preach the whole of Scripture. Aren't there some passages? Aren't there some precious promises from this book that teach you that God is on your side, that teach you that you can ask God and he'll give you? I mean, Jesus taught in Matthew 7, ask, seek, and knock. And he didn't stop there. He said, if you ask, what? If you ask, he'll give it. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. Ask whatever you will in my name and I will give it to you. Psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The psalmist said, he's an ever-present help in time of trouble. But I think if we're going to walk with Christ, be a follower of his through seasons, if we're going to be faithful at the end of whatever the number of years God gives you, we're going to have to grow. We're going to have to see the full experience of life that God intends. We're going to have to be careful not to twist scripture to suit our personal preference and our selfish interests. And we've got to make sure we grow up that God is not just seen as a vending machine where we put a little bit in and get something out that we want right there in that moment, right before our eyes. I want us today to turn to Psalm 88. We will in a moment put the passage up like we often do. But I would love for you to have 
scripture in front of you. Most of you will go to the screen. You can look at a screen in front of you, the screen up there, or you can go Flintstone like me and just have an actual Bible in front of you. Psalm 88. This will be a little different than last weekend. Last weekend we looked at Psalm 1611, put it up, small verse. We're going to read several scripture, several passages in this stretch of scripture. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon the Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? He's getting sarcastic here. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And all God's people said, wait. What? No, they didn't say amen. Don't say amen. You don't say amen after that. You say, wait, what? Where's the happy, right? You, you want that part that says, that's got a neat bow just tied on it, right? Like the TV show that you watch or the, most of the worship services you attend or this, the TED talk that you listen to. Like tie a bow on, make it all end well. That part that says, now I'm, God showed up and now I'm happy all the day. Or if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Or maybe bring in Pharrell Williams with that hat and sing happy, right? Run through the church aisles and sing I'm happy. He sing, y- y'all know that song, number one song from 2014. He sings, he says 48 times in that song, I'm happy. 12 more times he wants you to know that nothing will ever let him down. I mean, he wants some happiness, right? And what I learned in that song, Happy, the number one song of 2014, was first introduced to us at the end credits of the movie Despicable Me in 2013. And they tried after that hit movie, they tried to get it on the radio and it couldn't get any play. No, no, zero, zero play on the radio in 2013. And then they released a video, a low budget video where they had people like you and me singing and dancing to that song, running around like a fool in the streets, singing happy, happy, happy. And it became a sensation. It was one of the most popular songs of the year of the decade. It was, it, was, it was replicated by many people. Even Mississippi did a video. Did y'all see that? Some of our, some of our college kids on the campuses here, Fondren was in it. Uh, Fondren Church was pictured in it. it. It got a lot of hits on YouTube. Happy, happy, happy. And I'm convinced that that song made it on the radio and made it into our hearts because there's something in us. It's not the high budget, low budget. It's just us. We want to be happy. In an age of excessive depression and melancholy, there's just something, I think it beats in every single chest in the room. We want happy, but you don't really get it 
in Psalm 88, do you? So what do we do? This one's pretty tough. If your idea of God is vending machine, that's not going to take you very far. Vending machine God is not going to get you past your, past your first real trial. You enter into some serious difficulty and loss and suffering, then vending machine God is going to become forgotten God. I got nostalgic this week because I was moving. There's a library of mine right behind this wall, behind the hallway. And I was moving a lot of books in my library up to the third floor to a new office. And I just saw some old stuff and I started throwing away some stuff. Susan says I need to, there's a lot of stuff I need to throw away. But I was throwing away some stuff and I ran into a journal. And I ran into some, some of you not even going to know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> These are cassette tapes of some old sermons of mine at another church. All right, young people. Come up here later for nostalgia. Yeah. Now, I didn't listen to them all. By the way, if you think these sermons are bad, you ought to try to listen to some of these. But I remembered something that I preached, and then I look at something that I wrote at the same time many years ago. And I was standing in front of some people, and it was like happy, happy. That was my public confession. But if you read my heart in private, it's very different. Now, I don't like to think that I'm a liar or a deceiver or a hypocrite. But I wonder if I can be more honest in my spiritual walk. Why does a public sermon have to be so different than a private journal entry? And what I love about the Psalms is what Bono of U2 and one of my favorite authors of all time, Eugene Peterson, what they collaborated on. You can look at them on YouTube and see them talking about the Psalms. Because Bono of U2 and Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message and many great works, they look at the world. They look at the world and they see the injustices and they see people trapped and they see people hurt and they see the suffering and they see things on a global scale and they're saying, God, where are you? And they want to be honest about their own struggles. And you know, that's what we see here. I just wonder why sometimes we can't see it more here and here. Right? And so before we go any further with Psalm 88, well, I just want to say this is an emotional psalm. And this is an honest psalm. No pretense. No pretending. No people pleasing. Anybody struggle with people pleasing? None of that here. None of that. It's just honest. That's like if I were to take it, if, if, if those years ago in that particular week and that stretch of difficulty in my life, if I had just taken my journal entry, why, why, why did I have to preach this really bad sermon? Why couldn't I have preached this honest sermon and just told people where I was? And here in the psalmist, we just see some honesty. We see what? We see personal betrayal. If you look at verse 18, the last verse, he says what? My beloved, friend, companion, they've shunned me. I'm reading from the ESV, my favorite study Bible verse. They shun me. Who wants to be shunned? Raise your hand if you want to be shunned. Front or back, male or female, young or old. If you want to be shunned, raise your hand. Nobody's going to raise their hand. Nobody wants to be shunned. Everybody wants to be included. Everybody wants to be accepted. 
There's a little kid in Nebraska, a little kid. He developed a new app, a new app that's pretty popular now, a new app called Lunchroom Buddies or something like that to help people that get shunned find acceptance, to help them overcome that awkward moment. Because when you're in class, everything's structured, right? Teacher tells you where to sit and people have to talk to you or they have to sit next to you. But you go in the lunchroom, what are you going to do there? What if, people, what, if you're, what, what if you're a social misfit? What if, what if you don't fit in? What if people don't include you? Here's an app that can help you. can help little kids all around the country not get shunned. I don't want them to get shunned. You guys having a party anytime soon? Invite me, okay? I want to be included. Don't shut the preacher out. And though I'm an extrovert, a raging extrovert, I'm no different than you. You're no different than me. You want to be included. Nobody wants to be shunned. And here's what I've learned. It's going to happen to you. For whatever reason, my vending machine view of God led me to believe that everybody was going to like me, that no one would ever disagree with a decision I made or misunderstand me or talk bad about me when I wasn't around, that I would never have a really close personal friend desert me. And what I've learned even recently in my life is that the Scripture gives many accounts of personal betrayal. This is one of them. And it hurts if it's your beloved. It hurts if your best friend. Have you had, don't raise your hand, but have you had a best friend stab you in the back? Have you had somebody closest to you just look and say, hey, we are done. And I mean, it's, that's it. They're giving you the Heisman and it's over. And there's the shun. But maybe it's not the shun or maybe the shun looks different. Maybe for you it's just the neglect. I don't want the room temperature to rise too much. But maybe it, it's a marriage where a spouse is cold or indifferent or unresponsive. He experiences personal betrayal. And he appears to be blaming God. Not only personal betrayal, he gives us chronic pain. He says in verse 16, verse 15, man, from my youth. I've been afflicted close to death from my youth. In other words, this is staying with me. Here's what I want to tell you about me. I don't know how my pain threshold it compares to your pain threshold. Right? I mean, there's some, there's some strong warriors among us, and there's we got some. Sissies among us, right? I mean, there's people you can't take, can't take pain. And I don't know what I'm like compared to you, but here's what I've learned. I can take some pain. In fact, I had a pastor across town text me about a year ago. said, Robert, you need to read a book. It's called The Painful Side of Leadership. And I read it, and I needed to read it. And the idea there is you can't lead an organization unless you're willing to absorb a lot of pain. You won't go far in God's kingdom if you won't be able to absorb a lot of pain, what's your pain threshold? What kind of pain can you take? And here's what I've learned about my pain acceptance, my pain tolerance. I can take it if I know when it's going to end. And if it doesn't last long. But if it's chronic, okay, that's another level. Yesterday, I was at a large public event. All right, I'll say it. I went to the Ole Miss game. And I bumped into a friend. I bumped into a friend. Almost literally bumped into him. And even though he was hot and sweaty and I was hot and sweaty and at the wrong place, I gave him a big hug, right? And we, we didn't really need words, 
But I looked at him and I said, man, hey, you got through it. He knew exactly. We, it's just no words needed. And you got, you got through it. And for over a year, he went through something very difficult. And he just didn't know when it would end and when God would really show up. But God did. And he's through it. I think he's better for it. That sounds like a cliche, but I really believe it. And his countenance, it just showed it. It showed it. Not only do you see personal betrayal and chronic pain here, you see deep darkness. Deep darkness. Verse 6 and verse 8 talks about being surrounded, about being confined, about being overwhelmed. The regions of the darkness. I read recently about an explorer in the South Pole who they went on a voyage and it turned into over a year. They were lost for over a year. And he said sub-zero temperatures, I mean South Pole, sub-zero temperatures, extreme scarcity of food. But he said this explorer, Ernest Shackleton, said the worst part about it, darkness. In the South Pole, in the South Pole, the middle of May, the sun goes down and doesn't come up again until late August. Could you imagine stretches like that of just darkness? Here's a picture of an avalanche. We don't have a lot of them in Mississippi. Not too many of you have been enclosed by an unsuspecting avalanche. But the experts tell us when avalanche gets you suddenly, if there's any chance of survival, if you're, if you're packed in the snow and ice, that more times than not, you don't know. You start digging, but you don't know which way is which. Now think about this. If you're claustrophobic, I'm going to mess with your head right now, right? But if anybody really claustrophobic? Just, could you imagine? And you're, it's just survival and slim chances. Or and you're just digging and you don't know if it's, you don't know what way. And here he's talking about the regions of north and south, east and west, all around him. And the darkness can be so heavy sometimes. The darkness can be so heavy we don't know which way at all. So as we round toward home, I want to put a portion of Psalm 88 up. It's the second verse. And it says this about a subject that's so baffling and bewildering to us. About the subject of prayer. Let my prayer come before you. That's part of verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Now, here's, there's no way to gauge this. But I wonder how many in a room this size have sort of given up on prayer. When's the last time that you've prayed? When's the last time you really stopped and really poured out your heart with a sense of expectancy that God is hearing and that God might respond? Let my prayer come before you. He says that before he goes into the pit, before he gets honest about personal betrayal chronic pain and the deep darkness. Let my prayer, let it come before you. Does God hear? Is he going to be there? Is he going to be there to answer these prayers? Vending machine God, that God that we want to serve, put a little in, get something specifically out, make it immediate, write something that suits your palate, your taste, right then and there. That's different than what <clears throat> Scripture really teaches us about prayer. 
You know that the Bible is not naive about unanswered prayer? Do you know the, do you know the biggest, the single biggest motivator to pray? The single biggest motivator that helps my prayer life, and I'm sure yours, you know what it is? Two words. Anybody want to guess? Answered prayer. And you, there's a need. You bring it before God. He responds. Somebody's far from home. There's a prodigal that's walked away from God. You pray for them and they return. You've got anxiety. It's so great you're Googling panic attacks on the internet. And it's just overwhelming you. But you give it to God. You, you, you get down on the floor and you pray. And suddenly there's this just unearthly peace that overwhelms you. The single biggest motivator to answer to, to, to prayer, to your prayer life, is answered prayer. The single biggest demotivator to your prayer life is what? Two words, hyphenated. Say it out loud. Unanswered prayer. The single biggest demotivator to your prayer life is unanswered prayer. Somebody wants to be married. They pray that they will meet somebody. They never do. Somebody wrestles with depression and they pray that it will be lifted, but it's not lifted. Somebody's been wrong, they've been betrayed, cheating, lied to, stolen from. They pray that justice will prevail. Justice does not prevail. And what is surprising to me is that in Scripture, there are probably more accounts of unanswered prayer than answered prayer. Peter James and John are up with Jesus on a Mount of Transfiguration. And they're hyped up about what's happening in this vision that Jesus is giving them. And Peter's the guy, maybe some of you are like this, I'm like this, where you just, in those moments you don't know what to say, you should be quiet, but you say something. You should just don't talk because you don't know what to say. But Peter asked Jesus. He says, hey, let's, let's put a shelter here for Elijah. Let's put one for Moses. Let's put one for you. And Jesus is like, no, bad idea. we got more work to do. James and John or with their mama. And their mama kneels before Jesus and says, hey, when your kingdom really does come, we're just figuring you out right now, but when your kingdom really does come, I pray I'm asking you that one of my sons can be on your left and one of them can be on your right. And Jesus is like, no, the kingdom is not about getting your mommy to self-promote you. Bad request. When the disciples go in with Jesus to the village in Samaria, in Samaria and there's hostility, remember, between the Jews of Israel and the Samaritan people. And they say, Lord, Jesus, should we pray that, that we just rain down fire on them? And Jesus is like, check the hate that's in your heart. He tells them, no. No. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Jonah. Four different men in scriptures, four different occasions where they got so discouraged and depressed that they prayed a prayer asking God to take their very life. And I bet they're all glad, if, you know, if we could ask them today, I bet they're all glad that when that dark mood passed that God said no. And there is an account after account after account of God saying no. And God gives us some not yets in addition to the no's. Abraham had to wait many, many ridiculous years in order to become a dad. Joseph had to wait a couple of years before he got out of prison. Israel had to wait 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. David had to wait many, many years on the building of the temple. And even then, he didn't get to see the ultimate finished product. There are so many no's and so many not yet's 
in Scripture. And we have to wonder why. And I can't stand up here today and say I know. But I will say this. Let's say you're a parent or a grandparent. Let's throw grandparents in there. And let's say you have a little bitty child. I think one just made a fuss in the back and got carried out. So be done with it. Um, good riddance. I'm just kidding. Suffer the little children to come into me. Um, let's say you have a little child. And somebody hands you a script to their life. Their life, their future. And on that script, you read things that trouble you. Things like they're going to have a learning disability in school. They're going to get their heart broken by a boy or girl in high school. They're going to have a marriage that goes through an intense time of separation. They're going to develop this, this sickness. And you were given a few minutes and an eraser. What would you erase? What would you erase out of your child's life, your grandchild's life? Would you erase everything bad? Every point of pain? Every trauma, every struggle? You wouldn't if you really cared. You wouldn't if you really loved them. Because it's part of the process. Jesus taught this story. And I think sometimes we, we're going to shuffle a little bit with our musicians. Pay no attention. But Jesus taught this parable. It's recorded for us in Luke 18. In a minute I'm going to quote it from the New Living Translation. But it says in Luke 18, 1, that Jesus taught them a parable in order that they would pray and never give up. In order that they would always pray and never give up. And in teaching this parable, we see some of the humor of Jesus. I always stand up here and talk to you about how Jesus is the greatest teacher of all times. One of the reasons I'm a follower of Jesus. He's the most brilliant educator and teacher to ever live. But I think sometimes we forget how funny Jesus was. And Jesus told a story about a judge. And it says the judge didn't fear God or didn't love people. And that's kind of funny because that's what a judge ought to do. A Hebrew judge back in the day, fear God care for people. And Jesus said, there was a judge in a certain city. He's making up the story. There's a judge in a certain city. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't care about people. And one day a widow, a persistent widow who, you know, society had, was tilted against her. And this widow comes to the judge and she says, give me justice in this, this matter of dispute with the enemy, with my enemy. And Jesus, in telling this story, says that the judge, that this, this woman, widow, she comes after him and comes after him. She repeats her request and repeats her request. He goes to the dry cleaner. She's there. He's at the library. He picks out a book. She's behind the book. You know, hey, grant my, give me justice. Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy over and over again. She prays. And this widow who doesn't fear God or care about people, Jesus in the story says, the, widow, the, the judge says, I don't fear God or care about people you got to give him credit for self-awareness, right? Some of us are jerks and we don't know it. This guy's like, I'm a jerk. I don't fear God, I don't love people. But this woman, it says in Luke 18, verbatim, New Living Translation, says, this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to give her what she wants. This is Jesus' story. I'm going to grant her request. I'm going to give her favor in her pursuit of justice in this matter of dispute with her enemy. Because she is wearing me out with her request. How much more? 
does God in heaven, if this unjust judge is going to do that, how much more God? Remember why Jesus told this story? So that they would always pray. They would never give up. Psalm 88 troubles me because I want happy. I mean, I I want the vending machine, God. I want every prayer to be answered. I would probably be that dad or granddad that take the eraser and just take out every point of pain. But there's a reason for the no and the not yet. Isaiah, those who wait on God, those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. It goes on to say they'll mount up. In other words, they're low, they're in the pit, but they're going to be lifted up. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. I love everything about that verse except the word what? What's the worst word in that? Except the wait. But there's a reason for the no and the not yet. When I get a letter from a man out of state who says, I'm mad at God. Because my daughter is suffering a life-threatening, debilitating disease. And I pray that God would heal her. I pray that God would bring understanding to me. I pray to God, God, make me sick. Make me suffer, not her. I'm mad at God. I'm so mad at God. What I learned from Bono and Eugene Peterson about the Psalms, there's 150 of them. 1 through 145 is filled with lament, with pain, with anger. Listen, what I learned from those guys, not anger at God, but anger with God. And do you know that anger always has an object? Are you, anger, are you mad at somebody today? Are you sitting next to somebody that's mad at somebody? The anger, there's an object, right? There's a person, there's somebody, and man, they're just stewing or you're stewing. I'm angry and I'm angry there. Anger at God pushes him away. Anger at God prays less and judges more, but anger with God says, let's be angry together. Because this joyous, happy God, the most joyous, happy being in the universe is also a God who gets angry at injustices. Jesus prayed a prayer that didn't get answered. Jesus prayed a prayer in the garden. He knelt before the Father and he said, let this cup pass. The most desperate prayer ever prayed from the most discernible spirit that ever lived, from the purest heart that ever beat. And heaven went silent and the cup did not pass and the request was not granted. But the Father's no to the Son was his yes to us. Hundred and f- one through 145 of the Psalms, more of them are about lament and even anger. But 146 to 150, it's all praise. It's all praise. And Eugene Peterson has said, 
that if you keep praying and keep praying and keep praying, every prayer ultimately will turn to praise. That could be really hard where some of you are because I know where some of you are.